We will be in Genesis with no more segues. Let's begin with the reading of God's Word. Genesis 21, 1 through 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who, had, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes when she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. She saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are a dry and parched land without your word. We have hard hearts and stopped up ears and blind eyes without your word applied to us by your spirit, by your grace and mercy. So, Almighty Father, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 
Send the Spirit now that we might behold wondrous things from your law. That we might see a little bit more who you are as our Father, as our Lord, as our guiding Spirit. That we might love you more and worship you in spirit and in truth. We cannot do this in our own effort, but by your word and spirit we can, and therein is our hope. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. An odd uh, passage, not a common passage, the, the Ishmael narrative. Um, and so if there's, if there's one thing I want us to think about, um, there's a lot of cultural context that has to be unpacked from this for it to make any sense at all and to, to kind of, um, for God not to be guilty of something here, we, we need to understand some of the cultural things that are going on, some of the language that's going on. But the Apostle Paul reads a lot of these stories and he tells us that these were written with us in mind that these are written as examples to us. And that we need to remember that the main character of this story is not Abraham, it is not Isaac, and it is not Ishmael, it is God. That God in His providence is guiding His people. He is guiding His offspring. That God is sovereign over history, and what He is doing is good and true and beautiful. And when the text does not look that way, we need to pause and, and uh, give it some time. We need to let it work on us, and we need to ask ourselves, what, what am I not seeing? And so, um, particularly, th there's so many things that could be unpacked from this text. Where I want us to end is in thinking about, in our own lives, why does God linger so much? Why does sanctification take so long in our own lives? Why does the fixing of the issues in our lives, why does, why does Jesus delay so long to return? Why does God linger? And I would argue that, that in this we see God as a father and we see him as a good shepherd doing very good things, but it's going to take us a while to make that leap. So let's just go through it verse by verse. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The, the text um, inspired of the Holy Spirit, written by uh, Moses, uh, God wants that to be very clear to us. God said he would visit Sarah, and he did. That God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. God makes promises but when did those promises start? 25 years ago. Abraham is already kind of old, even for that time, 75 years old, when he is called out of Ur of the Chaldees, a pagan worshiper, the New Testament will tell us. Abraham has been called by God and been given promises and grace. And that grace in time leads to faith, he believes God and God counts it to him as righteousness. And now it's 25 years 
later before he really sees the fulfillment of it. But God fulfills his promises. And, and so we're, we're immediately, yes, God is fulfilling his promises, but why so long? It's been 11 chapters of the Bible between um, Abraham's first mention in the genealogy in 11, his call in Genesis 12, his faith in Genesis 15, all of these promises. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. The, the text highlights the fact that it's been a long time. He is now old, older than people are normally having children, even at that time of slightly longer lifespan, of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of the son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. He calls him laughter, because remember that when God announces the birth of Isaac to Abraham, you know, we always remember Sarah laughing, but they both laugh. When God tells Abraham, Abraham laughs and then talks about Ishmael. And then when, he, when it is reiterated about a year previous um, than where we are right now in the text, Sarah laughs and God goes, why, why, why'd you laugh? Often the, the commentaries or the sermons on Sarah's laughter will, will try to draw out, you know, is this derisive laughter? Is this doubtful laughter? Is this joyful laughter? Do you ever just hear someone say something and you chuckle a little bit? I mean, do you think about that before you do it? That laughter can, can be all of these things. We're actually going to see it in a second. With Ishmael, laughter can be a derisive, a, a, a mean thing. But there's something humorous about this, bearing children in their old age, that, that God wants highlighted and goes, this first child of Abraham I want named Laughter. The, the Bible is a, is a serious book. It's, it's, there isn't much laughter in it. If you want to find laughter in the Bible, you're going to find a few psalms where God laughs at the plans of men. But we laugh as God's image bearers. There's a reflection of who he is. I think that the Gospels don't see Jesus laughing all the time because he particularly is a man of sorrows because of what he comes to do, but I do not think that will mark him for all eternity. God wants the first child of Abraham through whom the offspring will be named as laughter. And, and Abraham is obedient here. He was told to call him laughter or Isaac. And verse 4, and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, who was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Notice how the, the text itself highlights God commanded it and he did it. Note, notice the chain of events. God calls Abraham. God is gracious to Abraham. Abraham has faith worked in him, which God credits to him as righteousness. That leads in time to obedience and then we see in Sarah, it's going to lead to praise. That chain of events is really important. First call, then grace, then faith, then obedience. Beloved, one thing that the Bible teaches, sometimes it's easy for um, kind of anti-Calvinists to look at Calvinists and go, you just love Paul so much. You, you read Paul and you, you don't look at the rest of the Bible. And that's just not true. That This order of events starts right here in the beginning in Genesis. God calls, God is gracious, God works faith, and that faith produces obedience. 
and that obedience ultimately leads to praise and worship. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Whatever it was a year ago when she laughed, now it is praise. Now it is joy. All week I've had the song from the Messiah, unto us the Son is given. This would have been a, a, a great you know, Genesis reading uh, in December. Because this becomes a theme throughout the Bible. For a woman to be barren is to be ashamed in her culture, to be cursed of God. And this is no small theme in the Bible. You have Sarah, you have Rebecca, you have Rachel, you have the, the, uh, the mother of Samson, and then you have Hannah, you have Elisha dealing with a, a barren woman, and then you have the arrival of Jesus, you have Zechariah and his wife. Unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. And this is celebratory, which is why they celebrate. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh for me. Then she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. This is celebratory. God has finally fulfilled his promises, not in the timing that we would have chosen. I want us to think, what, why, why would God linger? Would God have been more glorified if he calls Abraham and then just immediately gives him a son when it's kind of on the cusp of natural at that time. Sarah in her 60s, at that time in terms of the lifespans that it's telling us that might be a woman in her maybe 45. You know, it's, it's at the end of normal for bearing children, but it's possible. God calls them to something and then he waits and he waits and he waits and year after year. And, and the text highlights the fact that the way of women had ceased with her. They understood basic reproductive cycles. It's not. God lingered that he might be glorified. God lingered for Abraham's sake and for his own glory, and they are now worshiping him because they could not look to their own flesh. This is celebratory. But there's this lingering problem. In their doubt in their fear, in their desire to fulfill the promises of God in their own flesh. Remember, God, Abraham believes God, and he believes he'll fulfill it. He just doesn't, remember we talked about, he didn't trust his means. He trusted God's promise, didn't trust his means. We can be tempted in the same way. We believe that the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but then we don't trust in the means, the ordinary means of grace, prayer, the proclamation of the word, the administration of the sacraments, church discipline, that these are things that, oh, you know, maybe we need to minimize them so that gates of hell don't prevail. It is easy to... We can be tempted to believe God's promises but not believe his means. And so now he has a teenager son named Ishmael. He has participated in polygamy, which actually I, I hadn't planned to talk much about polygamy because 
You would think our culture is so far from it, but I don't know if you've watched the news recently. I forget which publication it was. I don't know if it was the New York Times or the Times. There was a major publication, I think this very past week, talking about the normalization of polygamy and polyamory. Because, you know, the normal marriage and sexual norms of the Bible are just so puritanical and constricting. One of the dangerous things is that there, there are people that will even misuse the Bible to justify that, to justify polygamy. And they will point to Abraham. They will point not to Isaac, but to then Jacob with his four wives. They'll point to David and to Solomon. But beloved, we need to learn how to read narrative. <laughs> that if you think Abraham having multiple wives is an argument for it, then you haven't seen the mess that that makes of their lives. You, you don't need a propositional statement, you know, a, a, God didn't need to footnote and go, oh, by the way, this was a bad idea. You can see the problems it caused in the marriage. You can see the problems it caused amongst the children. It's being normalized in our day. And this is an argument against it, showing the mess of it. And so it goes on. Verse 9. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And if you remember, this is the second time that this interaction has happened. And God is choosing to, to uh, highlight it twice. What's, what's different? Earlier, a few chapters earlier, she says the same thing, and Abraham listens to his wife, and God steps in, meets with Hagar, and says, go back. When the child was little, she, he sends Hagar back. And now God permits Hagar leaving. What's going on here? I think there's some things in the text that, that can help us with this. She says, cast him out, verse 11. And the thing, this is very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. He seems to have genuine love for the son. Earlier chapters show that. This is displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy. If you read your Bible with a pencil, you could put a line through the word boy there um, and put young man. Um, the, the, the word used here is yelled which can mean maybe someone Judah's age, maybe a little 10-year-old. Um, but it could also be used of a 20-year-old. Um, and boy here is, is a little disconcerting. We, we know Ishmael's age. Ishmael is 13 when the promise is given, 14 when the child is born, and then weaning would normally have been, the final weaning would have been three to five years later. That's 17 to 19 years old. This is a young man. Peak physical shape. This is a young man. God doesn't send out the child when he's a boy, but, but when he is a man. See, this is why women wanted men, they, they wanted to give birth to, to boys. It's a brutal world. Might makes right. 
Our world wants to erase all distinction between men and women, which is the death of women's sports nowadays, because all the best women's sports are being dominated by men now. Every week it's a new sport. It's just we cannot highlight differences, apparently. But women wanted men. Why? Because often the men would die early, and who is going to care for you in your old age? It wasn't a big pile of cash in a 401k. It was strong men. And even the women wanted to give birth to young men, to carry on the family name, to, to take care of them. When, when, when uh, Hagar was brought to Abraham, Hagar liked the idea. She was being elevated from slave to now kind of co-wife. It's a, it's a different world. It's, it doesn't make it right. It absolutely is wrong. But it wasn't just a temptation on Abraham's part. Abraham wants it. Sarah wants it. And Hagar wanted it. But it was a mess. Just because everyone involved in it likes the idea of it doesn't mean it's a good idea. And now, even, even though their sin has given birth to this child where they are trusting in their flesh and not trusting in the promises of God. God doesn't just let that child go. No, 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 Abraham, you have obligations to care for that child until that child is a man and now can provide for Hagar. And he doesn't tell him to sell Hagar. He could have made some money here. He could have sold Ishmael. They are released and they are set free. And God sets them free with a promise. God said to Abraham, <clears throat> be not displaced because of the boy, because of the slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. There is a particular offspring through whom God knows in his providence he will bring the Christ. But every child of Abraham, uh, God is going to be faithful to, to build up nations from them, the Midianites and, and whatnot, many of the people groups that Israel is going to deal with as they leave Egypt and they come into the promised land are children of Abraham. Some of them even seem to still be Yahweh worshipers. The Midianites in particular, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, seems to be a priest of God Most High. That in Exodus, Jethro is allowed to offer a sacrifice before the Israelites and that is pleasing to the Lord. So Abraham rises early in the morning. He takes bread and a skin of water, gives it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child. I hate that translation because it makes you think that this 19-year-old is being slung over this woman's shoulder. Puts the the bread and the water on the woman's shoulder, and then he sends her with the child, with the young man. And he sends her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. She is from Egypt. She is essentially headed back to Egypt. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. It makes her sound like she's got this little baby. No, they're hiking along together, and she says, lie down here in the shade. We're dead. I don't even want to be near you as you slowly wither and perish. The water in the skin is gone. She put the child under one of the bushes. She went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. 
As she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy. Hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. You know, in in Galatians, it talks about Sarah and Hagar, the child of promise, the, the, the wife of promise and the wife of the flesh, the child of promise and the child of the, of the flesh. That Ishmael had made himself kind of an enemy of this child of promise, that his laughing is, is uh, in Paul in Galatians is going to say, it's the persecution of Isaac. He is against him. He is the older son and probably thinks that the inheritance will be his. And so he is sent away. There, there is a, major, uh, a very important reason in which Ishmael is sent away. He seems to be an enemy of the child of promise. And yet, when God calls us to love our enemies, that is not, not God calling us to do something that God has not demonstrated time and time and time again in the Bible. Sometimes it's the harshest passages that actually when we take our time, we see God's patience, even with the enemies of God's people. The Canaanites, everyone wants to focus on the the destruction of the Canaanites. How long was God patient with the Canaanites? 400 years before he brings them in. And then Rahab, a Canaanite, has faith immediately grafted in. Caleb is a Kenizzite. Caleb, one of the faithful men is a Kenizzite. Caleb in Hebrew means dog. And he's grafted into the family. That some of the harshest stories of the Bible, that when we slow down and we actually look at the details, we see God's love of the people that are not his people. And at any moment, any of those people who come by faith are immediately grafted in. This idea of the inclusion of the Gentiles by faith into the people of God is a story that begins begins in Genesis and Exodus. And even though Ishmael here is, is not, does not seem to be worshiping Yahweh, God has made promises. He is going to keep them, and he is still being gracious, merciful, and compassionate to Ishmael. If God can be this way to those who oppose his people, maybe we too can be gracious and love our enemies. So God speaks, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. God heard the voice of the boy where he is. Verse 18, uplift up the boy and hold him fast in your hand. I will make him into a great nation. God opened her eyes. She saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin of water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. He grew up, the young man, he grew up. He lived in the wilderness, became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. His mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So we've we've talked about the the cultural context of of polygamy, the joy of the birth of Isaac and Ishmael, but I I want us to talk a little bit. There's so many things that we could just pause here for a moment. We could think about the the promise-keeping nature of God. We could talk about God's patience. We We could talk about the joy of the birth of the child. But I want to talk about Abraham's walk with the Lord across the story 
here. From, from beginning to end, we see that he is called, that God is gracious to Abraham, even though he is a pagan worshiper. God works faith in him by the Holy Spirit, and God credits that faith to Abraham as righteousness the same way he does for us. And then in time, you see obedience and praise. That, that's, that's just normal justification, order of salvation. But God also sanctifies us. God works with us over time. And, and this Ishmael thing, it, it brings to mind, why wasn't, I mean, Abraham was forgiven for the sin of sleeping with Hagar and bearing this child of the flesh and not the child of promise. He trusted in his own means. You know, God, God forgave Abraham. Why didn't he just send Hagar away immediately? God is a father that disciplines us. And, and this idea, I want us to just meditate for a moment on God's lingering fatherly nature. John Calvin would say that all of the providences of God should be thought of as his fatherly providences. This is one thing I've been learning in my own study of systematic theology is that God does not become father in time. God is eternally the father of the eternal son. To be father is central and core to, the fa- to our God in heaven. He has eternally been father. There was never a time when he was not father, a father delighting in and loving a son. This is one thing that makes Christianity different than uh, Islam. To not have a trinity is is to not have a God that is eternally loving because he has no one to love. God in time becomes creator. He creates in time. He is eternally father eternally loving and delighting in the Son. And the Father and the Son both eternally begetting the Spirit and the Spirit being the one that unites us to that love of Father and Son. The same love that the Father has for the Son is the love that we have by union with Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Why does this all matter? I'm just trying to justify thinking about God as Father here in His shepherding of Abraham. Abraham is declared righteous by faith, eternally. He is justified before God. Yet sanctification is a bumpy road. And even though we are eternally forgiven, sometimes it is not good for us to just escape the consequences of our sin. If a Christian business owner, you know, declares bankruptcy just because they legally now don't have to pay off their debtors or the people they owe money to. Um, Just because they have the right to do that doesn't mean they ought to. They ought to, as best they can, pay those debts. It's not good for us. It is not good for a father to always just let his children escape some of the consequences. Not because they need to pay for their sin. But there, there are things and major things that they learn in God's shepherding of him. And so Sarah and Hagar, can you, can you think about this? Every day, Hagar and Ishmael are a reminder of Abraham's faithlessness and sin. And, God, and he doesn't get to get out of providing for him. He doesn't just get to, get to leave. He has to, he has to provide for them until the time is right and the child is born. 
And then there is this time in which God in his providence, providing for Hagar and Ishmael, lets that reminder of that sin go away. In the Day of Atonement, which is one of the high days of the Jewish calendar, you can read about it in Leviticus 16, there were two animals that were part of the Day of Atonement. One, their sin is confessed over and it's slaughtered. It's offered on the altar. One, their sin is confessed over and it leaves. It's driven away into the wilderness. Doctrinally, to, to use some systematic terms, this is the doctrine of propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God. This is our justification is a legal declaration that we are righteous before God. Expiation is God taking it from us. We read Psalm 103 for the call to worship, and it talks about as far as the east is from the west. I want us to just meditate on this for Abraham. 25 years of waiting, half of that time, he has this emblem of a son and a wife that just remind him of his faithlessness. He is still justified. He's still loved by the Father. He still has to kind of not pay for his sin, but he has to take care of some of the consequences of his sin. And that is good that God does that. Our justification by Christ does not mean we get to escape the punishments in this life, the, the, the natural consequences of sin. But there is also a time in which God takes that away. And I think Christians are tempted in one of two directions. We want to do one and not the other. Sometimes I think we just, we, because we are saved, we just want to escape the consequences and go, that's forgiven, I don't need to pay anything, I, you know, I'm just going to skate free. That is not a good testimony to the world. But also, beloved, some people will not release their beloved friends and family or release themselves from their own consequences of their sin. And they continually remind the, the person, that maybe a husband and wife can do this, maybe two siblings can do this, maybe coworkers can do this. Beloved, God takes our sin as far as the east is from the west, and there is a time to release it and let it go. It was actually in, in Greek when the New Testament talks about forgiveness. If you're holding something and you just let it go, that's the word, aphiemi in Greek. It's just to let something go. In any of your relationships, if you have ever had someone ask you or you have asked them, can you just let this go? Can you just forgive me? That is asking for forgiveness that it be let go. And the narrative illustrates the doctrine of the forgiveness of God, I think. That we see as God is a father, as God is the good shepherd, shepherds Abraham, he, he doesn't get, he just, he doesn't get to go scot-free because he did something wrong, but he also doesn't just forever hold it in front of him and go, look at what you did and I don't know where you are today. Maybe there's people you need to go pay, or you need to help out, or you need to apologize. 
because you have misused the doctrines of grace to justify walking away from responsibilities. And maybe some of you need to stop reminding your spouse or your friend or your coworker of sin that has been long paid for. It is done. It is remembered no more. I don't know which of those two sermons you need to hear, but I pray the Holy Spirit would help. We have a gracious God. We have a gracious Father. And as fathers discipline their children, they know when a consequence needs to be dealt with, but also a good father takes it away and doesn't keep reminding their children of that time they did that thing. This is the God we worship. And oh, He is such a God. Let's pray.